Hello and welcome to Analyzing Finance with Nick. In today's video, or videos, as this may be a multi-part piece, I am going to break down Ray Dalio's series on principles for dealing with the changing world order. And Dalio is a great thinker who has a lot of depth into this 40-minute video. So it's going to be a long one here. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Ray Dalio, he is the founder of Bridgewater. Uh, Bridgewater from 2005 to at least 2018, I'm not sure if it still holds the title, uh, was the largest hedge fund of all time. He was one of the pioneers in quantitative finance and in a lot of global macro concepts such as the all-weather portfolio and risk parity. Uh, the Bridgewater had several ups and downs and he even in his mid-30s the firm almost failed due to some struggles early on but overall he still remains as one of the brightest innovators in finance and has a very interesting perspective since retirement he's been sharing some things on his own approach to life through his principles series and has also gone on to do bigger economic analysis in this video, I'm going to analyze and critique where I agree and where I disagree with his thoughts on the changing world order because I think some of his implicit biases that are net favorable towards China and uh, overvalue the importance of income inequality are kind of where him and I tend to depart. But with that little introduction, let's get started with the changing world order. The times ahead will be radically different from those that we've experienced in our lifetimes, though similar to many times before. How do I know that? Because they always have been. Over my roughly 50 years of global macroeconomic investing, I've learned the hard way that the most important events that surprised me did so because they never happened in my lifetime. These painful surprises led me to study the... Yeah, I mean, the thing is he's right about is that the macro investing and markets and countries' successes and failures happen in cycles. And I recommend for context on this reading a book called The Fourth Turning uh, by Neil Howe and Strauss. And what the point is is that these cycles historically tend to last about 80 to 100 years because that lines up well with the human lifespan. And market cycles tend to last about 36 years because 36 years lasts about as long as a typical career path does, say from when you graduate from college in your early to mid-20s to when you retire in your late 50s and early 60s. Um, cycles, I think, have gotten progressively longer over time due to increased longevity and the internet creating a larger institutional memory. But despite that, the cyclical pattern of both macroeconomic flows, markets, and geopolitical trends still holds quite strongly. Dalio starts this by having a brief explanation of what led to the breaking of the gold window in 1971. Uh, I discussed my thoughts on the importance of 1971 in my reaction video to Jake Tran and several other places, 
but I am now going to show what Ray has to say about it. In 1971, when I was a young clerk on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, the United States ran out of money and defaulted on its debts. That's right, the U.S. ran out of money. Yeah, that's what people don't realize, that they, oh, the United States government has never defaulted. That's not true. They effectively defaulted and during the Civil War. They effectively defaulted when FDR cut the gold window um, by reducing the the price of the dollar to gold in half, and they did once again in 71, thanks to the blowback of the guns and butter policies of the Lyndon Johnson administration. How? What actually is interesting is not about my thoughts on the gold standard and the fact that it went away, but really the lesson that Ray learned about trading this moment in 71, because this was towards the start of his career, whereas for me this was well before I was born. Pandemonium broke out, but not the kind I expected. The market was up, way up, and went on to rise nearly 25%. That surprised me, because I never... Yeah, I made this mistake too uh, when I was a similar age to Ray in 2012, uh, when the Fed did QE3. I thought of it as a sign of weakness that the U.S. government and the U.S. economy was in severe trouble and needed extended liquidity to keep the system afloat and the market would recognize this and gold would shoot up and the dollar would crash and all along with risk assets would not do so well just because it's the admission of, oh, um, this is not, this is a fake hollow economy, but the exact opposite happened. If it was 2013, was the strongest year in the post-2008 financial crisis until um, the pandemic, 2020. And like that, 71, um, the stock market rallied the first 18 months after the removal of the gold window in a very strong way. And being caught on the wrong side of that uh, taught me a lesson really about um, what happens in a currency devaluation. People will flock and buy things that can at least preserve some value so that they don't just lose everything sitting in cash and that greed, especially if the economy is not doing extremely poorly in a recession would outweigh any fear of what is a shaky economic system. That you keep this principle in mind. These experiences gave me another principle, which is to understand what is coming at you, you need to understand what happened before you. That principle led me to study how the Roaring Twenties bubble turned into the 1930s depression, which gave me the lessons that allowed me to anticipate and profit from the 2007 bubble So now we got the idea of inflation, the historical cycles of governments printing money when they're in trouble, and the importance of studying the other principle mentioned in the early part of this video, of using the past as a good metric for the future, which may not be good for other things that technology is constantly disrupting, but economics and the political reaction function to when people run and governments run out of money. I think it's something that is fairly evergreen. 
and so we can use history as a cycle to analyze it. So now we're going to go into what are the drivers for this and what are the causes of this cycle and how it works for the rest of the video, which I think is the more interesting part of his content. First, countries didn't have enough money to pay their debts, even after lowering interest rates to zero. So their central banks began printing lots of money to do so. Second, big internal conflicts emerged due to growing gaps in wealth and values. This showed up in political populism and polarization between the left, who want to redistribute wealth, and the right, who want to defend those who's holding the wealth. And third... All right, so it's at those first two points. Um, I think he's correct on the first one. I'm going to put a link in the description to the Ken Rogoff and Reinhardt study about the breaking point for governments. And generally that's about 90% debt to GDP where a government cannot honestly pay back its bills without some sort of financial repression when you get above that point. And conveniently, like the aftermath of the 2008 crisis was when most developed economies in the world got past that point. The notable exceptions were Australia and New Zealand, who benefit heavily from being net commodity exporters. And so therefore, were able to keep their economies and housing markets on an uptrend when the rest of the world uh, had their spiral during the GFC. So that's why we have to have keep interest rates below inflation for as long as we have. And now the Fed is finally starting to act on it because they've been able to inflate such a large percentage of the debt relatively quickly so that the pain point for a government to go insolvent has gone up. Uh, prior to the pandemic, that number was probably somewhere in the three to three and a half percent range on the 10-year treasury and that's probably gone up about 100 to 150 basis points since then due to how much of the extra liquidity as translating to higher inflation that has in effectively inflated away a large portion of government debt. Uh, I'm going to attach an image of the government's debt to GDP since 2020 and if you notice in the chart despite all the doom and gloom about government deficits and government debt, due, because of inflation, the debt to GDP has declined from 135 to under 120% of GDP, and that's using conservative government estimates for inflation. If you use more, I would say, accurate estimates of inflation, the level of government debt to GDP is probably even lower, given the fact that inflation probably has been much higher. Uh, infl I'm not a fan of inflation. I think it is a regressive tax that hurts the middle and lower classes of hardworking Americans and people in other countries with high inflation around the world. And, however, it has one beneficial effect for governments, and that is lowering their debt liabilities without too many people paying attention. Uh, the, the ideal scenario probably for a, a government using financial repression is claiming inflation is two when it's really four. So it's kind of like the frog being boiled in the pot scenario. However, it's gotten to the recent years to the point where the inflation is, even in headline government numbers, eight and a half percent. 
And so what it actually is is possibly higher, and that is politically unstable. And it's bad enough now that people will react angrily in the ballot boxes. And so now the financial repression no longer makes sense in that environment. So that kind of explains a lot of the shift going on towards the government's willingness to fight inflation because they like it when it's a little bit and it's quietly helping cover um, the excesses of a big government. But when it gets too unmanageable and too obvious for people to ignore, like you see it in your grocery bills, you see it in the ability to buy a house and how high housing costs have gone, you could see it in what's going on in the used car markets or in when you go to the gas station that now is that bad then the, now they realize oh we actually have to do something or the people will cost us us referring to the political class all of our careers and possibly livelihoods uh, the second part is the uh, the idea of inequality and I think that he is using a coincident indicator and mistaking it for a symptom of a weakening society. Income inequality is just a fact of humanity. I did a video on this called the Pareto Principle, and it wasn't one of my more popular videos, but I think it was very educational about how the natural power laws that operate the world generally create an 80-20 distribution where 80% of the resources or 80% of the success in a given endeavor go to the top 20%. And that keeps spiraling upward. So within that top 20%, 80% of those people, 20% of those people get 80% of those rewards and so on and so forth. So if you take this up enough times, just through pure Pareto mathematics, the top 1% get 49% of the wealth. And that is in line with the level of inequality in the United States. Uh, the only really times in history where inequality has gone down have been during times of enormous distress that really no reasonable person would want to see. These include wars, revolutions, famines, or the, the, what the biblical term for it is plagues, which nowadays are pandemics that would have caused enough population decline to shrink the labor force. And same with the famines have the same effect. Enough people starved to death, so it shrink the size of the labor force. These things were all inequality reducing events due to larger chunks of the lower classes dying from calamitous events and therefore they would have higher bargaining power because there was the same amount of work but less workers so the employers had to compete more or the other side is that wars and these natural disaster type scenarios give the government the excuse to take more control and scare people into giving up their economic rights and liberties like a lot of these great welfare states in the world, such as in UK and Scandinavia, were created during war times. And the way they were able to sell this confiscation of wealth to the people is saying, hey, we all have to be in this together to win the war and fight the war, and we gotta do whatever it takes. And 
that's how those were sold. But then conveniently after the war, they didn't get rid of it. And for those who, as a result, are more, say, like in the libertarian or just I don't want government intruding on my economic and individual rights, the most important issue isn't tax policy or isn't any other just typical libertarian issue. It's war because war is what provides the political impetus and the excuse for those who want to take away people's rights and liberties to actually execute and do it. Uh, pretty much anybody who is pro-liberty should be the biggest peacenik out there. Uh, but that's kind of a little bit off topic. When it comes to inequality, what Dalio is saying is that Dalio thinks that inequality is one of the things that causes a society to decline, whereas I think that any society on the rise is going to get more and more unequal just because as long as the pie keeps growing and the Pareto principle of distribution plays out, the winners are going to get farther and farther ahead. It's just simple power law dynamics. And the only way that can be stopped is through blunt force of the state or some sort of tragedy usually and loss of life so that's so basically any long time of peace and prosperity all things equal is going to create a more unequal society and so that's why we have them so i don't think inequality really is why society declines and i think that's just a lot of people find the idea of inequality, especially those on the political left, to be distasteful. And so because of that, they think, oh, since this I find this to be distasteful, it must be part of why my society is declining. You could say the same thing with on the right, where a lot of people, right-wingers, happen to be Christian, and they don't like a lot of the, what they consider to be moral decay in society, so they'll say, oh, moral decay and people living lives that are debaucherous and unethical to them is part of the reason why a society is in decline. Yeah, some of that behavior would be more common uh, in a society that has more wealth, similar to inequality. I'm not going to really get into the merits of inequality debate or on social conservatism in this video, but I just want to say, I'm just saying that I don't think it's really that important in the bigger picture of these things with the cycles. Third, increasing external conflict between a rising great power and the leading great power, as is now happening with China and the United States. So I looked back. I saw that all these had happened together before, many times, and nearly always led to changing domestic and world orders. The last time this sequence happened was from 1930 to 1945. What exactly is an order, you might ask? Okay, so he is right that you have these resets of the order, and often when two powers are jostling to take control of the next order, you have a conflict. This goes back to what I was talking about with uh, the fourth turning and generational cycles. 
Where I think he's wrong is that I don't think China is really this super strong ascent that he is leading off to be. I'm going to break down piece by piece where I think Ray is mistaken on that. But, and also he's mistaken about it is that the rising power always wins somehow. Whereas, if you looked at the world, say, 150 years ago, instead of in 2022, in 1872, who did people think was going to be the next world power to supersede the British Empire? They probably would have not thought of the United States. They would have thought of Germany as being that power. They had just reunified. They had the strongest military in the continent. They had the strongest industrial capacity in the world. They had a country that had a reputation of being very hardworking, very, very precise, very having a very strong military, Prussian ethic. Like countries who are on the other eyes, such as Japan, would copy the Prussian model to build a lot of their institutional infrastructure. And the U.S. was this country that didn't like to interfere in affairs in other parts of the world and was more laid back and was only thought of just as a place to make money and not really the dominant power as safe. And so because of that, I think the better analogy for China would be a less militaristic version of 19th and early 20th century Germany. And what happened in Germany, they did challenge for the dominance of world power, but they lost to the British. But the British had to sacrifice so much blood and tears and spoils and treasure that they were forced to abdicate power to the United States just out of a financial default. Do, who do I think would be the third, that third party in this world today? I don't think there is one. And I'll explain later in the video what I think would happen in the next turning if it's not going to be Chinese ascendancy that Ray thinks will be. It's a governing system for people dealing with each other. There are internal orders for governing within countries, typically laid out in constitutions. And there is a world order for governing between countries, typically laid out in treaties. Internal orders change at different times than world orders, though whether within or between countries, these orders typically change after wars. Civil wars within countries, international wars between countries. They happen when revolutionary new forces defeat weak old orders. For example, the U.S. internal order was laid out in the Constitution in 1789 after the American Revolution, and it is still operating today, even after the American Civil War. Russia got rid of its old order and established a new one with the Russian Revolution in 1917, which ended in 1991 with a relatively bloodless revolution. China began its current internal order in 1949 when the Chinese Communist Party won the Civil War. You get the idea. Yeah, the thing is that I don't necessarily agree is that the, the China is the only order that is not old and inefficient. That's what he's saying is that applied here. And the other thing is why can't a dominant power 
have its own shifting of its internal order without losing its dominance geopolitically. Like I think a good example of that scenario, which I think is actually the most likely scenario to happen, is what happened in the transition between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. Uh, it was very ugly. Politics really just basically declined to demagoguery to whoever could borrow the most money to aggressively buy off the votes of the plebeian class. In fact, the part of the motivation of why Caesar never stepped down from power was because he had so many debts on his balance sheet from all of the creditors he had to accrue to buy off enough votes to move up the ranks of Roman politics that if he ever stepped down, he would face loads of litigation and potentially um, criminal charges for not paying back all of his creditors. And that, along with just the growing demand for more autocratic power, led to a lot of ambitious generals at the time basically making a mockery of the republican institutions of Rome until the point where they had civil wars between the first and second triumvirates. And then once that all the dust settled, Augustus became the first Roman emperor and rebirthed the system as the Roman Empire, which was the same, it was still the dominant power of the world at that point. Han China was somewhat competitive as well, but they were worlds away given the ability to travel back then was limited. And they were able to basically go through one of the shaking up of their internal order without losing their position in the world order. In fact, they got stronger because that during those civil wars, Rome on the net gained more territory and created a much larger economy. This is when they acquired possessions such as Egypt. I could see the same thing happening now because I think a lot of the world orders are all in that phase where they're becoming inefficient. I think they all got the world wars, the one of the main side effects of them is that they all synced up every major world power's timeline. Like even China, they had a civil war going for an extra four years after the end of World War II, but it was still 1949 when their order was established. It wasn't that much longer after the end of 1945 and Bretton Woods and the end of the Second World War established the world orders for the United States and the European powers and India with its independence in 1947 from Britain and then Russia was the only one that's kind of a little bit unsynced because their crisis turning event was not World War II but it was World War I and the Russian Revolution but at the same time Russia also had its reloading phase in the 90s much earlier than the rest of the world how unfortunately for Russia their their reloading of their domestic order wasn't enough to make them the dominant power again or at least as of April 2022 that doesn't seem to be the case so I think he's right about how as a the government institutions have domestic and world orders but the problem is I don't think that you have a situation where the dominant power losing its status and having its world order um, go down automatically with its internal order being forced to restructure is not required. 
And I think really, honestly, whoever's going to be the dominant power in the rest of the 21st century is who is able to most successfully change their internal order in a way that makes them stronger. Because I think all the major countries of the world, Japan, the European Union, which is not a country, but I think if, if anybody in the Western Europe was to become the dominant power, it would be some sort of federalized EU. Uh, the United States and China all are at the phase of their current systems are not well suited for the 21st century and they're going to have to have a shuffle in their internal order. Um, I would actually be on Dalio's side as if China, say, was able to change its internal order to become a more free society but without a lot of the decadence and baggage that Western societies have accrued. Kind of like maybe the way that Taiwan works, but on a much bigger scale. And that could be the potential. That's actually the scary thing. It's ironically those who would love, to, the same people who would love to see the PRC break down and become a more democratic society. That, if that did happen, and and it became a more like society allowed more individual innovation and freedom that would probably would be the keys to make China the dominant world power even more so than today I think it's actually a lot of people think that Chinese like government because it can do things so quickly and aggressively without consent of the people is what makes it strong whereas I think the insecurity that is built in to a lot of the operations and motivations within the party and the repressive nature of the society is actually what keeps it down and prevents it from becoming the dominant power. So I think a lot of people are looking at this kind of backwards. But let's keep going on with the rest of Ray's commentary on this. The current world order, commonly called the American world order, formed after the Allied victory in World War II when the U.S. emerged as the dominant world power. It was set out in agreements and treaties for how global governance and monetary systems work. These changes take place in a timeless and universal cycle that I call the Big Cycle. I'll start with a quick overview, then give you a more complete version. Okay, so this is kind of the stuff we I really previewed a little bit before, but I think he does a great job with this diagram showing kind of how these transition. So you have the turnover of the old order to the new world order, where there's the revolution and the and not world order, maybe more new, not the right term, more new internal order of a country, and all the political dissidents and enemies are taken out of power through either peaceful or violent ways, you kind of just, you, whether by force or by collective consensus, you get a new way of deciding how global trade and the world is going to be run and also the eternal affairs of the dominant country. Due to that stability, you get peace and prosperity and economic growth because uh, if you, if there's no like fear of the current system being shaken up and if the rules are clear it's a lot easier for people to play the game of global economics and investing 
and that results into more debt growth because with all the economic growth you need um, capital to finance it. However, people get a little bit over exuberant and they borrow too much because, or they, the bankers are willing to lend too much because they think, oh, the prosperity that's been going on in the early phase will just keep going. And it won't just keep going, it will just accelerate. And because of that, the level of asset prices and or monetary liquidity and debts exceed the payback of the projects and that creates financial bubbles that also helps create the rise of the wealth gap but I don't really think that's an issue and then you have the financial bubbles the bigger problem here and then you also gain reserve currency status but I think reserve currency status is not correlated with the peak of power I think the reserve currency status comes in line with the victories of a war usually a country has to lose a war or have a Pyrrhic victory so bad that it completely decimates their financial capabilities like what happened with Britain in the world wars and because of the fact that the dominant power becomes so strong and the currency becomes strong or people's expectations for whether it's wages or the or asset prices so high it becomes cheaper for other countries to compete at least on a comparative advantage level and so competitors come up to challenge them and then this all starts to work on the downside where you have the overstretch, you have the financial bust and the economic downturn, you have the productivity declines because a lot of people were basing their value on a time on a society what that was perpetually growing due to geopolitical dominance and a order getting more stable and in order getting less stable they become less valuable to the marketplace and therefore Governments print money to compensate for the falling value of the consumers, um, the workers, so that they can keep the economy going by replacing the income. I've talked about that in a video called Compensation Theory, which I also have in the description here. And then when that doesn't work to solve problems, then either the people turn on the government or the government will blame some foreign power or try to start a war to distract people from the fact that they've been mismanaging the country on the way down. And then the end game results in debt and political restructuring, and the cycle goes on again. And that concludes part one of my series on breaking down Ray Dalio's video. This is going to be a three or four part series. And I look forward to you joining me and going through the rest of the video. Please like and subscribe if you want more of this type of content in the future. And I look forward to talking to you again soon.